great pleasure to welcome you to this episode of Holiness Talks. Today's episode is a continuation of the last one, where we started examining the nature of holiness in the book of Genesis. As a starting point, we must remember that the word for holy or holiness is not used in the book of Genesis, which actually will make it to be a little bit odd to study the subject of holiness in that book. However, we could turn it around and say that on the other hand, it is a plus factor in the sense that it offers us an opportunity to look at holiness beyond mere word study and see that even where the, the word does not exist, the motive, the concept or the thought nevertheless remains. It's just like when one goes to Galatians in the New Testament, you don't see the word hagiazo or hagios, which is the word used for holiness in the Greek or hagiosone, holy or holiness. Nevertheless, the concept is there. There are other words, there are other motives or metaphors that could show us the presence of holiness in that book. Now back to Genesis. We see that in Genesis 1 to 11, we find a narrative which tells us something about God's creation of humanity and explains humanity's estrangement from the God who created everything to be very good. Now from this narrative arises a question of how holy humanity was prior to the fall and how sinful after, which suggests that holiness basically was to be found in relationship with God. Sin, however, on the other hand, is a choice to live outside of that relation, which has resulted in a spiritual deprivation and consequent what we know as moral depravity. Now, before we go to Genesis chapter 12, we see some further threads from the prologue. The narrative goes on to show us that God never leaves humans to their separation, but God continues to reach out to humanity. And we can say that to today, that God continues to reach out to humanity. At one point, God decides to start over by means of the flood. And what does God do? God selects one man to be the carrier of his salvation, a man that God described as righteous and perfect, a man who walked with God. You see, in this description of Noah, we find a clue to the essentials of the relationship to which God brings salvation, to the life which can be described as holy. Talks about righteous walking with God. Unfortunately, as one goes through the story of the flood, it is very clear that it is not a story of restoration to relationship, rather it's a story of a further alienation from God. Noah, whose name meant rest, he was called rest by his father in hopes that he will be the one who will bring relief from the curse of the ground, which we see in Genesis 5.29. He saves humanity from complete destruction, but he does not bring the reconciliation to God. So the salvation that Noah brought is limited. So the story goes on to the increase of humanity on earth. We see that in chapter 10. On the one hand, 
the blessing of humankind, which we find in Genesis 1.28, has not been revoked. On the other hand, a serious question remains unanswered. Humanity may still be blessed in its increase, but how will God bring about the restoration of humanity to relationship with him? At this point, we can quickly say that holiness, after all, is restored relationship. How is God going to effect that? How is God going to undo the effect of sin? Chapter 11 dangles a very tantalizing clue before us. It begins to narrow our focus from the whole earth in chapter 11, verse 1, to one people. These one people now are the descendants of shame. And then moving on to one family, Terah, and then from Terah, a family, to one man. As we see in the genealogies of chapter 5, so now we would expect the word of God next move to follow. But then the prologue ends without resolution. Now we get to chapter 12, which is a chapter of great importance in understanding God's intention for the restoration of humanity to relationship with him. We ask the question, where do we find hope now? Is everything hopeless? Is everything completely forgotten? Well, the first three verses of Genesis provides the beginning of the answer, which will be spelled out in the lives of Abraham and his descendants, that is Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, and the people of Israel. The answer is that Abraham was going to be a blessing. God was going to make him a great nation, and he will be a blessing to several other people. So we see that. It is interesting that when God blessed all humankind in Genesis chapter 1, he blessed Adam, but now he blesses one man for the purpose of blessing all humanity. Whereas all humankind was commanded to increase, now God promises to raise up a multitude of people who will be a blessing to all the families of the earth. Now, how is God going to bring this to pass? We do not yet know. There's going to be a holy nation, but we don't see that holy nation until Chapter, Exodus chapter 19. So when we look at the story of Abraham, we saw that in Genesis chapter 12, God called him and to get out of his kindred, out of his land. It's in Genesis chapter 17 that we begin to see the first clue to the way in which God's promises are going to have effect on all the earth. So in Genesis chapter 17, verse 1, God says, I am God Almighty, walk before me and be perfect, and I will make my covenant between me and you. Now think about that. God tells Abraham, walk before me and be perfect. In other words, Abraham is commanded to be like Noah. We're told in Genesis chapter 6 verse 9 that Noah was a righteous man who walked before God blameless. So the kind of person the Lord is looking for to bring salvation and blessing must be the person who is righteous and who walks with God. So we see a few things. Number one, walks with God. God told Abraham, walk before me and be perfect. The word walk here is a metaphor for close personal relationship. We're told in Genesis chapter three, in verse eight, 
that the Lord walked in the garden in the cool of the day. The Lord walked in the garden in the cool of the day, and we see that that before the man, he walked before the man and the woman, fled from his presence, he walked with them. Then we're told in Genesis chapter 5, verse 22, verse 24, that Enoch walked with God. And when you look at the story of Noah, it's as if nothing about the life, sorry, Enoch, I meant to say, when you look at the life of Enoch, it's as if nothing in his life is as important or more significant than relating his life to repeat that he walked with God and he was not. Which means every other thing is everything other he had, whatever he was, whatever he had, they were unimportant, they were insignificant, they were inconsequential. The only thing that mattered about Enoch was that he walked with God. And then we saw the story of Noah. He walked with God, he found favor because he was righteous and perfect. And what did the Lord do? The Lord spared him from destruction. So Abraham is now commanded to such a relationship of friendship and obedience as a way of life. Second, he was called to be perfect. Well, that raises a lot of questions. How can anyone be perfect? And these questions are important for our conversation on holiness. How can anyone be perfect? Is any one of us bold enough to claim we are perfect? And if we know anyone who claims to be perfect, well, we know there will be a lot of friends and relatives, family members, acquaintances, office mates, and church members who will provide testimony to the contrary. So what exactly does it mean then to be perfect? Perhaps Abraham, we could say, being a biblical figure was capable of perfection, we might think. But the later record of Abraham, how he deceived Abimelech, I mean, he duplicated the trick, the land in Egypt in Genesis chapter 12, leaves out the possibility of thinking of him as being flawless and without mistakes. So the question is, how do we make sense of the question, the perfect? Unfortunately, some contemporary Bible translations do not help us too much. Well, be blameless only helps us a little, providing that we understand blamelessness is a matter of sacrificial imagery. You see, the Hebrew word tamim includes the sense of completeness and wholeness in much the same way as the Greek word teleios. This is not an absolute perfection. So that word blameless helps us a little. A little. It's not an absolute perfection, but a description of that which fulfills its intended function completely. A sacrificial lamb may not be a prize winner at an agricultural show, but then it will be free from disease or injury. From this sacrificial sphere, in which an animal which is offered is to be without physical blemish, the biblical writers extended the imagery to the ethical sphere as that which maintains moral integrity before God. So the word blameless helps us a little bit. This is seen by the terms with which perfect blameless appears. We're told in Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 4, the Lord's works are perfect and his ways 
are just. That's a term which is further described as faithful, upright, without injustice. David actually pleads that he is perfect with the Lord, keeping himself from iniquity, just as God is supremely faithful to his covenant love and shows himself perfect to those who are perfect. That's what we're told in 2 Samuel chapter 22. In fact, Job would argue that he is perfect and righteous in spite of the laughter of scorn from those around him. That's in Job chapter 12, verse 4. So in light of these examples, the command to Abraham is a call to a lifestyle of integrity. So when he's called to be perfect, perfection here simply means integrity, a lifestyle of integrity, faithfulness, and justice. That's all it entails. In simple terms, it's a life which is in keeping with God's actions. Because when one walks with God, one does the thing God does. May I repeat myself? When one walks with God, one does the things God does. So the command to be perfect in this way, we know, still sounds a little bit idealistic and impossible if we stop there. But then the lifestyle is defined and sealed with Abraham with a covenant relationship. So it's a lifestyle that flows out of a relationship with God. You see, the covenant that God made with Abraham was a covenant of exclusive relationship and devotion. And this lifestyle is, this covenant is contingent on the kind of lifestyle that God wants him to live. And God makes the lifestyle possible. You've heard me say before in one of the previous episodes that what God commands, God also makes possible. If I may say it again, what God commands, God makes it possible. And if we could extend that, when God gives us a command, he provides the grace, he provides the strength, he provides the means by which we could carry out what it tells us to do. You see, a covenant places expectations on both covenantees, both people who are in covenant together. The conditions for Abraham will be that he walks with God. He should walk with God, and that's it, which is a wonderful and precious invitation to friendship and to joy. But listen, that invitation to friendship, to joy, to communion and intimacy are not without personal cost. For instance, circumcision. The condition for God, which he offers without being asked, are to be Abraham's friend, to make him great, and to walk with him again. So it is vitally significant and important for us to grasp the place of covenant in relation to commands. Today, we place a great burden on ourselves and others by the consent to obey the command to be perfect. An unnecessary burden, particularly those of us who teach holiness and espouse holiness, 
we, we place the great burden on ourselves and others by the concern to obey the command, you will be perfect. There, as a result, there are a lot of casualties along this path in seeking to the fulfillment of the command by just obeying the minutiae, the little details of legalities, but is the wrong way around. God does not make the command the condition of entering into a covenant, but God enters into a covenant with us to provide the framework for us to fulfill the command. It's like God says, let's work together in total commitment to each other and learn from me the way of perfect obedience. So what does Abraham do? Abraham accepted the invitation. He enters into a covenant with the Lord. Yet we understand that even then, his performance is not perfect because it is after this that he takes matters into his own hand. When Hagar, when Sarah told him, you take Hagar and then Hagar will become a surrogate mother. He still took things into his own hand. And of course we see in chapter 20 of Genesis, he deceives Abimelech concerning Sarah. What matters in each instance is how Abraham responds to being discovered when he was discovered, what did he do? Abraham modeled for us how to deal with sin and failure rather than denying it. He did not deny what he did. But what does he do? He returned as he did in chapter 13, where he returned to Bethel, his meeting place with God. In chapter 20, what does he do? He goes on to pray for Abimelech so the Lord will bless him. So in this way, he fulfilled the purpose for, that God had for him. You see, Abraham, we know, is called the friend of God and is an example for all the friends of God. His work with God provides us with a pattern for everyone to follow. But let's add this caveat. The example of Abraham is not given simply to show us the way to our individual path to heaven. Rather, the example of Abraham is the pattern of the relation of the individual to God's great plan of reconciliation of the world to himself. So individuals like this. So when we talk about perfect, what do we mean? Something that fulfills its purpose of creation, of it fulfills the purpose of its existence. Completeness, that's what we mean. Moral integrity, that's what we're talking about. That when we are called to walk before God and be perfect, God calls us to walk in covenant relationship with him on a daily basis. To do that which pleases him. To do that which brings joy to him. When God calls us to perfection in Genesis now, God is calling us to a lifestyle of integrity, a lifestyle of justice, a lifestyle of purity. That is what God is calling us to. Now understand this. 
like in the case of Abraham. There's no stage we reach in our journey that we can't slip back. Not that we're encouraging for anyone to slide back. God has no pleasure in those that slide back. Let's make that clear. But like in the case of Abraham that we see, there is nowhere you will reach in our spiritual journey that we can't slide back. But when we do, and God shows us, we go back to our Bethel. We go back to where we started. Remember, it is the blood that cleansed us that keeps us clean. The question is, can we be holy? The answer is, by the grace of God, we can. Because what God commands, he makes possible. This is the episode for this week. We hope you have benefited from it. And if you have any questions or comments, please feel free to send it to us. God bless you. And bye for now.